0: Otto Frederick Roweder was a jeweller by trade, and a successful one at that. By 1910, he had three profitable stores in St. Joseph, Missouri. He was married with two children. From most perspectives, he had already achieved the American dream, but he wasn't content to stop there. You might have heard the saying, the best thing since sliced bread, but I doubt you've heard the fascinating story behind the invention. Inspired by his work inventing new machines for watches and jewellery, Wetter was convinced that he could build a machine to automatically slice and wrap bread and that bakers would delight in using it. He began using profits from his jewellery business to begin his research and development. Ultimately, he would sell all three jewellery stores to fund his new venture. In 1916, free from the security and comfort of his former career, he began building and improving his machine in extra space at a nearby factory. But the following year, a tragedy tested his determination and perseverance. A fire destroyed his only existing blueprints and prototypes. Years of hard work, gone in an instant. Welcome to Stroke of Genius a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role that intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I'm your host, Lauren Hutchinson. I'm a historian of science and a technology reporter, and I'm fascinated by humankind's ability to innovate and advance the world we live in. On today's episode, we'll explore three inventions in the world of food production, inventions which have promised to make life more convenient for those who use them. We'll hear how a jeweler became a forefather of modern food convenience, how centuries of incremental innovations led to our modern refrigeration. And at the end of the episode, we'll talk with a contemporary inventor who hopes to solve the conflict between convenience and quality.
1: It was a huge challenge to have his blueprints destroyed, and he had to pretty much start over. And uh, that really put him off his track for many years. My name's Paula Johnson. I'm a curator in the Division of Work and Industry at the
0: Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. We spoke with Paula to better understand Rowedder's special place in American history. The fire was a major setback, but it did not deter Roweda. He continued working from 1917 to 1928 on developing his machine. To earn extra money for his family, he also worked as an investment and security agent while he refined his designs. Over the next 10 years, He filed several patents, but he filed the big one in 1928. And the big one
1: would have been the machine for slicing an entire loaf of bread at a single operation. That was the title of the invention. It is metal. It's big. It's white. And it's just a cube. It's about five feet tall, six feet long, and about three feet wide. It has a little bit of metal trim, um, which saves it from, from looking like just a white box. But when you look inside the back of the machine, you can see the inner workings, and that's where you have the vertical rows of these sharp blades. That patent was awarded in 1932, and uh, the essential aspects of that design involved multiple uh, what was called continuous cutting bands or reciprocating knives to cut slices of uniform thickness. We have a photograph that shows the first installation at Chillicothe Bakery Company in Chillicothe, Missouri, and you know it just looks like this big white box with uh, loaves of bread um, in front of it, and then on a little conveyor belt going uh, off to the side. There's a chap talking on a phone, one of those candlestick telephones, and there's an old wire fan going, and um, there's a huge cash register and. This photograph, I think more than anything else, kind of shows what this could mean to have a a commercial bread slicer in a small place like this.
0: Early in the bread slicing machine craze, Roe Wedder confidently predicted his impact on the baking industry. In 1930, only a year after his first commercial sale, he gave an interview to a local newspaper where he revealed his vision for the future of his invention. There is still some
1: doubt being expressed regarding the future of sliced bread. And of course here, sliced bread is capitalized, sliced bread. But that is to be expected. There are always doubts about the future of anything. Personally, I have no doubts. I have seen enough bakers benefit in a big way from sliced bread to know that the same results can be obtained by any baker anywhere if he goes about the matter correctly. We are continuing our experimental and development work Confident in the belief that the real possibilities of sliced bread have scarcely been scratched. You know, you can look at his story and say, well, you know, there's somebody who didn't give up easily. Uh, you know, he's persistent. Or, or you could say, you know, here's somebody who suffered a lot of setbacks, but it actually seemed to make him stronger. He comes off as an optimist, as a real
0: positive kind of guy. And Roweda's optimism and confidence would be put to the test again, not from fire, but by a crash. Most of the nation ran straight into troubling times following the stock market crash in October of 1929. The resulting Great Depression brutalized America's economy, and Wedder wasn't immune. He could no longer afford to manufacture the bread slicing machine. But with much of the nation facing the harsh realities of uncertainty, unemployment, and even hunger, Wedder had great bargaining power, his patents. Wedder found a larger company to take charge of the manufacturing of his bread slicing machine. And he sold his patent rights to the Micro West Company.
1: And they purchased the machines and hired Rowetter to serve as the VP and sales manager. So he wasn't on his own for long once once it became a success. What's great and what I really love about this story is that Rowetter turned out to be a terrific salesman. I mean, who better to talk about what this machine can do and what a difference it's going to make and he traveled widely to introduce the machines to bakers all around the country. He also attended national conventions and trade shows. Um, he advertised in print media, trade publications, newspapers and magazines. It was a big deal. And he, w- he became the voice of
0: the bread slicer. With the combination of Roe Wedder's sales skills and his revolutionary invention, it's no surprise that the bread slicing machine experienced near-instant success, especially for bakers themselves.
1: For example, a company in Alton, Illinois, the Pan Dandy Bakery, or Pan Dandy Bread, said, Since we received your slicer, we have had an increase of about 300 loaves of bread per day. It looks like it will continue to increase more in the future. We would have a larger increase, but we charge one cent more per loaf for sliced bread than the same size loaf not
0: sliced. In Davenport, Iowa, the corn baking company's testimonial praised the unfair advantage the bread slicing machine gave them.
1: They said, the best part of sliced bread, as I see it, is that competition is absolutely at a loss to combat it. This was proven in our territory, and it's the first time that our competitors came to us and admitted we had them
0: licked. Only 14 years after its invention, The bread slicing machine was famously thrust into the national spotlight. On August 28, 1914, the Office of Price Administration, or OPA as they were called, were mandated to control prices after the outbreak of World War II. They had the power to institute price ceilings and ration goods such as meat, coffee, sugar, gasoline and tyres. Eventually, on January 18, 1943, the OPA's food administrator, Claude Wickard, ordered a ban on pre-sliced bread. But the following Sunday, Roe Wedder's place in history may have been forever cemented when New York City's beloved mayor Fiorello LaGuardia questioned the ban during his weekly radio address on WMYC, New York's public radio station. WMYC kindly shared with us the following incredible recording of that very address.
2: Another inducement was uh, uh, the prohibiting of slicing of bread uh, by the wholesale baker. Well, I don't know whether that'll save any money or not, But I received several letters (coughs) uh, telling me that the retailer had slicing machines and yet were not permitted to slice the bread for the customer and that it would really cost nothing to slice the bread once the machine was there. Well, this was impressed upon me because it just happened that that morning when I, uh, just before I left the house, I went to the kitchen and my wife was struggling with a loaf of bread and seemingly a dull knife and was having quite a hard time uh, in, in, in slicing the bread for the children. I don't see why, in reply to these letters, uh, a retailer uh, is not permitted uh, to slice bread if he has the machine there and if, he, if there's no additional cost.
0: Thanks in part to LaGuardia publicly questioning the logic of the new restriction, the ban on sliced bread was mostly ignored and was rescinded less than three months later. Roweda's success also depended upon a few cultural shifts that paved the way for his unique offering.
1: Americans have always been ready for convenience, I think, but in the case of sliced bread, you take a a longer view of history. Um, We can just remind ourselves that that baking bread is labor-intensive, and it was one of the first culinary tasks that American women were willing to relinquish. As home bread baking declined in the 1800s, commercial bakeries became more important. And by 1900, we found that only about a quarter of all bread was still being made in the home, which is pretty astonishing. Um, You know, of course, the trouble with buying a loaf was that it had to be sliced as it was used. And slicing the bread at home, you know, resulted in uneven pieces and a lot of waste. So by solving this basic problem surrounding such a common and everyday product as bread, and doing so by offering this modern and clean and convenient solution, you know, I think we could say that this machine had a pretty significant role in in American food history.
0: That significance would not have been felt if Roweda had not left his secure life as a jeweler to follow his ultimate adventure, becoming an inventor.
1: I think that's a powerful lesson for everybody, and especially for young people who think, oh, they only have one window in which to make a decision about their future. Well, that isn't exactly true. And so the idea that you're open to different experiences and to be looking around you and seeing, are there things that you you want to make better? Are there problems that you would
0: like to solve? While sliced bread was hugely impactful in lessening the time needed to prepare meals, our next invention had an even bigger impact on modern food convenience. It allowed meat producers to streamline their national distribution. It freed families from daily trips to marketplaces and allowed them to plan further ahead. And for the first time in history, this invention gifted people the ability to safely enjoy tropical fruits and vegetables during a treacherous northern winter. This invention is, of course, the refrigerator. Humans have tamed fire for as long as we can remember, but harnessing the power of cold temperatures is a relatively new accomplishment. It wasn't until the 19th century that enterprising men began to commercially harvest ice. Boston merchant Frederick Tudor was one of these innovators. In 1806, he delivered the first commercial shipment of ice from Boston to Martinique. Early operation used horses fitted with special shoes to drag blades along frozen lakes, cutting blocks into manageable pieces. Then workers used pulleys and special tools to store the ice in ice houses. Blocks were then shipped by carriage, barges and ocean liners near and far.
3: And it was not very successful at first, but over decades of practice, both by him and some people who jumped into the business after him, They developed an ice industry where ice cut off lakes in Massachusetts and Maine and New England uh, would be sent literally all over the world. You could get ice in the early 19th century from Boston all the way to India and still have some left when you got there.
0: That's Dr. Jonathan Reese, a professor of history at Colorado State University Pueblo and the author of four books including Refrigeration Nation. A History of Ice, Appliances, and Enterprise in America. He knows intimately the odds of ice surviving a lengthy shipment through warm climates.
3: On a good shipment, you could save half the ice. You know, you're taking big blocks of it, you're using sawdust as insulation, and what happens is the outside of the ice insulates the inside of the ice. So there really would be a a fair bit left by the time you, you took it halfway across the world.
0: And that ice would not be as pristine as what we expect in our crafted cocktails.
3: But if you cut ice off a lake or off a stream, chances are there's going to be dirt and sediment in it. So before 1880, everyone sort of expects if they ice their drink that there's going to be dirt on the bottom of the glass.
0: The leap forward from seafaring shipments of ice to neighborhood ice production happened thanks to the inventor Ferdinand Carr, his groundbreaking work the first artificial ice-making machine, was patented in France in 1859 and the United States in 1860. His significant advancement allowed for more consistent ice production. This meant less reliance on cutting ice from lakes and ponds, and an ice industry that's no longer reliant on seasons. The profound effects were wide-ranging. One major example was more reliable refrigerated shipping cars, which quickly empowered industries like beef. In fact, the number of cattle on western ranches doubled between 1880 and
3: 1900,
0: thanks mostly to the ice-refrigerated rail car.
3: Uh, They used to run uh, cattle from Texas to cow towns in the Midwest, stick them on railroads. Uh, What ice refrigeration does is it makes it possible for all the slaughtering of cows to be concentrated in the south side of Chicago, and then they can be kept fresh to different points on the east coast. This uh, sort of eliminates butchers from major eastern cities, not entirely, but uh, you certainly don't need a butcher if you can buy this so-called dressed meat coming out of Chicago. Uh, But most importantly, it lowers the price. So thanks to refrigeration, even before you have a refrigerator, uh, Americans can eat much more meat than they did previously.
0: And how did pre-refrigeration look for the average American home?
3: Well, I think probably the most important detail is that you had to have your ice delivered every day. Uh, So in urban areas and some select rural areas, there would be a man known as the Ice Man, who would put ice in a cart and would come by and uh, stick it in your—what well, we would now call it—an ice box. But that the first refrigerators were ice boxes, if that makes any sense. You stick it in the back of the ice box. This is why a refrigerator is called an ice box. That would be the source of refrigeration in your home. Would be the big block of ice. Uh, it would drain out over time. Probably the next day. Certainly two days. The Iceman would come again give you another block in order to keep all your perishable food fresh.
0: Eventually, companies attempted to use ice-making technology to build household refrigerators that didn't rely on ice at all.
3: The first household refrigerators actually required that um, homeowners cut a hole in the floor and the machinery was in the basement and was tied to the refrigerator on a belt. So sales uh, take a, a very long time to pick up.
0: Besides requiring a hole cut in the floor of people's homes, the refrigeration industry had an even bigger hurdle to address. Ammonia, the key ingredient in the refrigeration process, was highly flammable and incredibly toxic.
3: Uh, but quite famously, during the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, the refrigeration building uh, burst into flames. Yeah, killed a whole bunch of firemen who were trying to put out the blaze because ammonia is very nasty when it explodes.
0: This horrible incident, witnessed by thousands in attendance at the exposition, left a lasting imprint on the refrigeration industry. While many industrial refrigeration companies continued to assume the risk of using ammonia, the consumer-facing industry needed something safer. That's where a unique collaboration between DuPont and General Motors comes into play. In the late 1920s, General Motors formed a team of researchers to find a safer fluid to use as a refrigerant for their household units. After several years of tinkering, they landed on what they were calling Freon, a registered trademark of the Chemo's company. Freon was a name used to describe many of the refrigerants that they manufactured. But what they all had in common was a combination of the chemicals carbon, chlorine and fluorine. DuPont, who shared an interest in having safer refrigeration, co-founded the new chemical manufacturing company with General Motors, calling it Kinetic Chemicals. Their initial research also resulted in a new patented apparatus which uses this new gas in refrigerators. This patent was granted to General Motors' owned Frigidaire, who went on to become one of the biggest appliance manufacturers in the world. This long, complicated road to the technology that we have now, surprisingly, wasn't punctuated by one eureka moment or accidental breakthrough.
3: Interestingly enough, there are very few actual inventors who stick out to me in terms of refrigeration. It is probably the best example available of a machine that develops thanks to uh, a score of people all over the world making little teeny incremental improvements.
0: Refrigeration's gradual evolution wasn't finished. By the 1980s, the miracle chemical of Freon was found to have been harming the ozone layer. The Montreal Protocol of 1987 was an international treaty that aimed to protect the ozone layer by reducing the use of harmful chemicals like Freon. And again, it seemed to have worked. Current predictions show that the ozone may return to pre-1980 strength levels by the year 2050. What's more, this story of incremental refrigeration improvements still may not yet be done.
3: There is a new form of refrigeration on the horizon that can create cold with nothing but magnets and water, which will be absolutely revolutionary. It'll be good for the environment. It'll lower costs. It'll be easier, I suspect, to bring it to the many places in the world that don't have access to mechanical refrigeration because they don't have a reliable electrical grid. That's where I think the future is. It's spreading what's already happened to the rest of the planet and doing it in a a less environmentally damaging way. And um, I look forward to that.
0: To pause and reflect on the advancements in food convenience from the last century, we talk to renowned food writer Michael Ruhlman.
4: My name is Michael Ruhlman. I write about food. Food is really important, uh, and I'm grateful to be in this position.
0: Ruhlman has published more than 20 books about food. Much of his work is considered by many chefs to be essential to their libraries. His most recent book is Grocery, The Buying and Selling of Food in America, Ruhlman is passionately oriented towards helping modern Americans find a balanced perspective amongst a dizzying array of seemingly infinite food conveniences. Our wide-ranging conversations began before refrigeration.
4: Before refrigeration, food in a household was hard. People had to go to a store, not one store, but several stores, Uh, they had to go to a greengrocer, they had to go to a fishmonger, they had to go to a butcher, they had to lug it all back home. And that was hard. They had to do this daily.
0: Echoing Otto Roweda's own thoughts, Ruhlman offers a simple explanation for the success of sliced bread.
4: We were ready for it in 1928. We were ready for it in 1858. We're ready for it because life is hard and we want things to make life easier. And it made life a lot easier. My grandmother, who grew up in the Great Depression, would, you know, they'd cook squirrel in rural Detroit, because there was a time, we forget, there was a time when you could run out of food. The Great Depression only underscores the importance of having an abundance of food. My grandmother was always afraid of running out of food. I mean, she lived in a neighborhood where babies were buried because they couldn't feed them. It was, uh, it was, and it was secretive and whispered about, but it was understood by people. I mean, it was bad.
0: Fortunately, during and after the Great Depression, America experienced unprecedented growth in food modernization. Hundreds of food innovations happened in quick succession, so quickly that most well-meaning Americans eventually became quite distant from the source of
4: their food. But if I'd asked my father back in 1970s to make mayonnaise, he would have looked. He would have said, "You don't make mayonnaise; you buy mayonnaise." If I would have said, "Let's make our own vinegar," you know, his eyes would have spun in circles uh, because we didn't know how our food was produced. Our body tells us what's good for us to eat. Listen to your body. I say, don't don't listen to anything except what your body tells you. I love Pringles potato chips. I love them. They're crispy, they taste sort of like potato, they're salty. If I eat a can of them, I feel shitty afterwards. Um, when I have a steak with a mashed potato, with a heap of butter on it, salted green beans and lemon juice, I feel good after that. We need to listen to our bodies. That's what tells us what's good or not.
0: Roman's reflections on how to navigate between convenient and healthful foods haven't fallen on deaf ears. In fact, he serves as culinary advisor for our next innovators company. Robin Liss, the founder and CEO of Suvi, has big ideas for food convenience. She aims to prove that both optimum convenience and ideal nutrition can find an elegant meeting place on our home countertops. I'm Robin Liss, CEO of Suvi. Suvi is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but Liss spends a lot of time in New York City and China. She spoke with us very early one morning at a busy cafe on Manhattan's Upper West Side. She had already been awake since 4 a.m. working remotely with her manufacturing teams in Asia. So
5: Suvi is a countertop, refrigerated, multi-zone, cool-to-cook oven. Uh, and it's divided up into four components, a place for proteins, a zone for vegetables, a zone for starches, and a zone for sauces. And based on the time you tell Suvi you want to eat dinner, it automatically starts cooking each of those components for the perfect cooking time so you can walk home to an almost ready-to-eat meal
0: sous is named after the French cooking technique called sous-vide, which forward-thinking chefs have been using since the 1970s. To produce perfectly cooked foods, the sous-vide method cooks vacuum-sealed items in machine-controlled water at precise temperatures below the boiling point. Liss's invention uses sous-vide, along with several other classic cooking methods. That's right, Liss is attempting to pack a team of professional chefs into a
5: smartphone-controlled
0: countertop device.
5: Imagine a meal where, you know, you have a distinct starch, um, maybe a pasta or a rice, sometimes in a sauce like, like tomato sauce, um, a protein that is cooked beautifully well using the sous vide technique, which just cooks things perfectly, but still has a nice browning or crust on it because of our broiler. And then for vegetables, you get bright, green, crispy vegetables, maybe with a little bit of browning as well. Um, to give you that extra unctuous kind of flavor. Um, But each of those items is cooked independently, so you get really a a unique restaurant-quality meal, um, all automatically.
0: Liz explained to us what an ideal use of their technology could mean for a busy family.
5: They're at work, they're on their text messaging chat group, and Mom realizes that she's going to be at work an extra hour, so instead of coming home at 6, she's going to be home at 7. So she just pulls up her CV app, she tells Suvi to have dinner ready a little bit later. Everybody comes home. The kids come in the door after soccer practice or doing their homework, and they walk in, and Suvi's saying, hey, here's dinner, ready to go. But they get to personalize a little bit. They plate it the way they like it, maybe add some spices, enhance it, make it their own, and then they get to sit down for a lovely meal as a loving family and not focus on doing the dishes or doing the prep work or stressing out about dinner, and they can focus on each other and what they did that day.
0: Before Suvi, Liz founded the company Reviewed.com, a consumer electronics technology and home appliance product review media brand. Her breakthrough for Suvi came from her deep knowledge of the appliance industry.
5: What we were seeing was a, a lack of major innovation in home appliances, I think, because it was a very mature industry. So we said, how can we meet the needs of the modern, digitally connected consumer and automate dinner? And that's when we thought, you know what, the time's ready for a kitchen robot. And after this breakthrough, the real work began. Um, It's a non-trivial engineering challenge to make a cooling oven, and we really started focusing on that. And we thought that was the critical part of the home automation for a kitchen robot, because you know food safety is really important and you can't store food unless it's really cold and so if we wanted to have a kitchen robot that cooked things when people were away from their home it had to we had to figure out a way to go from this safe storage of food to cooking it automatically And so that required making a device that could do both things.
0: Of course, with all of the modern backlash against fast food and the like, we had to ask Liz about convenience.
5: I think convenience is a good thing because if we look kind of at the history of humanity, right, economic efficiency, convenience, things that have let us go from, you know, a society where most of us were agrarian farmers to fulfilling higher level needs, joys, entertainment is really good for people. And so convenience can bring people more time so they can do the things they want, fulfill their hopes and their dreams and their passions. We just want to save people time. The average American woman spends about 61 minutes a day in the kitchen. And frankly, there's just not nearly as much innovation in the kitchen as there is about cars or the you know, enterprise work stuff. But the point is, it's a massive area for ripe for technological change in order to make um, everyone's lives better, but frankly, mostly working women. And we're excited about that.
0: Lissa's inventions patent is still pending, and intellectual property is regularly on her mind. She's at a perfect time and place to share her thoughts on intellectual property with our audience and how it affects her company as they attempt to take their invention to the marketplace.
5: Um, On software, you know, intellectual property matters, but it's always less concerned because the code is is pretty much private. It's very easy to keep your code secret. Um, And uh, in, In media, there's at least, you know, a pretty good system out there for policing people who copy content online, right? So copyright enforcement's relatively easy. Um, with takedown notices and everything. In hardware, it's super scary as an entrepreneur because we know that the day we ship, all of our competitors, we know they've already purchased on the Kickstarter, and we know that they'll rip apart the machine and, and you know they're going to be able to see everything we did. And so it's, it's very scary, I'd say, long-term, um, that fear of being ripped off. But it is kind of worrisome and, and scary to know that Three, four years, multiple millions of dollars of innovation work will be, like, publicly revealed and dissected by our competitors the day we ship.
0: Liz doesn't let that fear stop her. She told us that her company never compromises on the quality of their IP lawyers, and she urges young entrepreneurs to get started and take the risk as it comes.
5: The reality is, if you're a first-time entrepreneur... You're never going to be able to eliminate all the risk, whether it's IP risk or execution risk or marketing risk. There's always going to be risk. It's about managing that, and you got to have the guts to take on some of that risk and potentially fail.
0: Liz, whose car was pulling up to whisk her away to another appointment, kindly offered one parting bit of advice for the next generation of innovators.
5: Just go do it. You know, if you don't have the economic resources to do it, do, you know, start your startup as a part-time side project and just keep working on it until it's economically viable. Um, My first startup never raised venture capital. It was all bootstrapped and kind of friends and family, and it took us a little bit longer to get there, but it worked out great. In the world of hardware, I mean, it's much more capital intensive, so that's much more difficult, but you can be creative. Um, But you're never gonna get anywhere if you don't start.
0: Will convenience ever come without compromise? That may be doubtful. But thanks to centuries of work from inventors and innovators, we have every opportunity to eat as good or as bad as we choose. Thanks again to our guests, Paula Johnson, Jonathan Rees, Michael Ruhlman and Robin Liss. I'm Lauren Hutchinson, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by At Will Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.